Hello, hi. Welcome to this week's installment of the Dirty Chai podcast with me, your host, Chio. The podcast where we focus on holistic professional and personal success by growing and developing the common denominator to all your successes, all your failures, and everything in between. You. It's about the mindset, emotional regulation, and the intentional personal development that underpins holistic success. Today, to my surprise, (laughs) we are continuing with the Crafting an Unforgettable Presence series. I thought it would take me a while to find a story that I would want to tell so soon after the Walter, Walter Chrysler story, but I was wrong. I am going to tell you today about Christopher Langen. I came across Christopher Langen in Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. There are two chapters, chapter three and four, that are dedicated to discussing genius, to considering whether geniuses are automatically better placed to succeed than people who are not as intelligent as they are. It is a fascinating story that brought me to tears the first time that I heard it. And it also brought me to tears preparing for this particular podcast. And that sort of emotionality might interfere with my ability to tell the story, but I hope not. Anyway, so let's dive right in. Who's Christopher Langen? The chances are you have never heard of him. Christopher Langen rose to mainstream fame in the United States when he appeared in a TV show called One Versus a Hundred. It was an offshoot of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And on that show, one person competes against a group of a hundred people referred to as a mob in answering questions. And if you can answer the questions better than the group of a hundred, you stand a chance to win a million dollars. It works like deal or no deal. So you keep going and you keep going. So Christopher Langen came on. He was um, he was the public face of genius at the time, having been discovered, I put that in quotes, and it was found that he had an IQ that was 45 points higher than than Einstein. When he was tested by 2020, for, um, when he was tested When his IQ was tested by 2020, it was off the charts. They literally couldn't measure it. He started speaking at six months. At the age of three, he had taught himself to read. At five, he was questioning his grandfather about God and remembered being very disappointed by the results. He would pass foreign language tests after looking at a textbook for a few minutes before the test started. He didn't attend classes. He, as a teenager and a farmhand... He made his way through Bertrand Russell and Alfred North Whitehead's famously abstruse masterpiece, Principia Mathematica. He got a perfect score on his SAT, even though he fell asleep at some point during the test. He would do a semester's math in an hour and he would pass the test. He would do a semester's Russian in an hour and pass. He could draw with such precision. His drawings looked like a photograph. And when he listened to guitarists play, he could imitate their movements so perfectly that he sounded like a trained musician. When he came on the show and he spoke, his sentences were described as marching out one after the other, polished and crisp, like soldiers on a parade ground. And it was very interesting that he did not use conversational mitigation. He knew exactly what he was going to say. And he cashed out at 250000 without miss- missing a single question. And cashing out at 250000 was actually a intellectual decision, having assessed the risks and having decided that this was too much, um, the, the risk beyond that point was too high, he simply cashed out. As one would think, 
<laughs> at this point, this is how geniuses roll, right? Hold that thought. Let's talk briefly about Lewis Terman. And Lewis Terman is going to give us a lot of important material that is going to color the Christopher Langen story. Lewis Terman was a young professor of psychology at Stanford University. And he met a boy named Henry Cowell. Cowell had been raised in poverty and in chaos, and he did not get along with other children. As a consequence, he had been unschooled since the age of seven. And he worked as a janitor at a one-room schoolhouse not far from the Stanford campus. He would sneak into the Stanford campus and he would play the piano. And the music he would produce was remarkable. Terman's specialty was intelligence t testing. And the Stanford or the standard IQ test that millions of people use around the world, the Stanford Binet, was actually created by him. So he decided to test Cowell's IQ. Because he reasoned that surely this boy must be intelligent if he's able to produce music like this with no training and no ability to read. It turned out that his IQ was above 140, which is very near genius level. Terman was fascinated. How many other diamonds in the rough were floating around out there, unknown to the rest of the world? And so he started looking for others, and he found a girl who knew the alphabet at 19 months, another who was reading Dickens and Shakespeare by the time she was four. He found a young man who had been kicked out of law school because his professors did not believe that it was possible for a human being to so precisely reproduce long passages of legal opinion from memory. In 1921, Terman decided to, to create a formal study um, of the gifted and to make it his life's work. He had funding and his plan was that he would find the most intelligent people and based on his belief that IQ was everything, these people would go on to become the best of the best. In fact, he wrote, his, he wrote in one of his journals, there is nothing about an individual as important as his IQ except possibly his morals. And this is all very important because a lot of this, despite that, a spoiler alert, his study was well, proved quite the opposite. But despite the fact that the study went on to prove the opposite, a lot of the thoughts that he had in the beginning of his study, which ran over many years, which ran over many lives too, was that intelligence was everything. And even though that's been disproven, we have retained the, the dregs or the ideas have stayed on in the social narrative. So anyway, so he's, he, he decides that he's going to study um, the gifted. And he sorted through the records of 250,000 students, high school and elementary, identified 1,470 children whose IQ averaged over 140 and ranged as high as 200. This group of geniuses came to be known as the termites. They were the subjects of what would become a very famous psychological study in history. For the rest of his life, Terman watched over his charges like a mother hen. He tracked, tested, measured, and I analyzed. Their educational attainments were noted, marriages, illnesses, psychological health, every promotion, job change was recorded. He wrote his recruits letters of recommendation and graduate school applications. He doled out a constant stream of advice and counsel and recorded his findings in volumes called Genetic Studies of Genius. His idea was that people with a very IQ, um, with a very high IQ, 
would be the leaders who would advance science, art, government, education, and social welfare generally. Um, as his subjects grew older, so this is now into their early adulthood, Terman in his journals would write with great excitement about how it was nearly impossible to read a newspaper account of any sort of competition or activity in, in California um, that, the bo- that the boys and girls would participate in without finding amongst the winners one of his gifted. Um, he, he was so convinced they would take writing samples, they would, um, they would compare them to the writings of famous authors, and they would confirm that absolutely these people were destined for, in his words, heroic stature. Today, actually, as I said earlier, many of Terman's ideas remain central to the way we think of success. That's why schools have ideas, have schools for the gifted, elite universities have particular types of intelligence and aptitude tests, um, all those sorts of things. If a person said to you that they have magical powers and they could raise your IQ by 30 points, you probably would say yes, because, I mean, that would give you an advantage, right? But the truth is not necessarily you may be familiar with an often referenced study by Princeton University's um, Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton um, that found that after $75,000 a year, your happiness plateaus. In other words, money can buy happiness up to about $75,000. I think the money has been revised to about $120,000. But the point is, at a certain point, the amount of my, uh, the amount of difference that money can make to your state of happiness plateaus thereafter you might have the means to buy more stuff but it doesn't necessarily make a difference to your mental situation that is the same sort of conclusion that Liam Hudson a British psychologist came to as far as IQ there is a marked difference in performance between a person with an IQ of 70 and a person with an IQ of 130, 170, 200. But he found that there is minimal difference in the ability for a person to succeed between a person with an IQ of 130 and a person with an IQ of 170. So in other words, where you reach a certain level of competence, where you are smart enough, right? Once you reach a level where you are smart enough, other factors begin to make more of a difference than the IQ itself. And that's very important. So he uses, an, the example that he uses is a basketball one, which I thought was, was quite good. So if you are, if you are five foot six, um, in other words, if you're about my height, what is the realistic chance of playing professional football? Minimal, right? Because my height, I, I'm short enough for it to make a difference. But what is what are the chances of success between people with equal talent that are six foot and six foot one? At that point, the difference is minimal and makes little to no difference. And that's what happens beyond it's argued about 120 points. Scientists disagree on exactly which point it is, but it ranges between 120 and 130. If you look at the list of universities where um, Nobel Peace Prizes have come from, you'll find that 
Yale and Harvard are on the university, but so is Gettysburg College and so is Holy Cross, so is Hunter's College. You will find when you look at the colleges that have had um, Nobel laureates in chemistry that the City College of New York is on there along with MIT, along with Hope College, along with Berea College, along with the University of Massachusetts, along with um, Rice University. While elite schools and elite IQ might give you a hand up in some situations, it's clearly not the defining factor in an outcome that is defined by a successful life. Perhaps I could even say an outcome that is defined as a successful life. So if you think about, so as far as, as this idea that beyond a, a certain threshold, the IQ doesn't provide an advantage, think here of 10,000 hours. This is a concept that is discussed many times, and it has found consistent, it's been found consistently that hard work beats talent. That's a different way of saying the same thing. A person with enough skill and enough competence who puts in their 10,000 hours is more likely to, uh, to succeed than a person with an above average talent who moonlights their talent, right? And we're going to circle back to this because we now need to go back to the story of Christopher Langen and finish it. And you will understand why all of this context and all of this research has been necessary in discussing this story. So what's Christopher Langen's story? Chris Langen's mother was from San Francisco. She was estranged from her family. She had four sons, each with a different father. Chris was the eldest. His father disappeared before Chris was born. He was said to have died in Mexico. His mother's second husband was murdered. Her third committed suicide. Her fourth was a failed journalist named Jack Langen. To this day, according to Chris, he has never met someone who was as poor as his family was. He talks about how they only had one set of clothes and he never owned a matching pair of socks. And they had, because they had one set of clothes, they would have to wash them and stand around naked while they waited for the clothes to dry. That's how poor they were. Uh, Langen was wildly abusive and he would lock the cabinets so that the kids couldn't get in. He used a bullwhip to keep the boys in line. He would get jobs and lose them, moving the family on to the next town. One summer, the family lived in an Indian reservation. Another, they lived um, in Virginia City, Nevada. Um, another, they were, they, at another time, they lived in Bozeman, Montana. And he lived, they lived in Bozeman, Montana for a long time. And one of Chris's brothers spent some time in a foster home. Another was sent to reform school. A lot of Chris's childhood was difficult. It was extremely painful. Jeff, it's Chris's brother, talks about how he never felt that anyone truly understood just how smart Chris was. And because of the way his family were treated and were considered just a bunch of deadbeats and he was severely bullied alongside his brothers. They started, he and his brothers started lifting weights. They learned to fight. When Chris was 14, Jack Langen tried to beat him up yet again, but this time Chris knocked him out cold and Jack just walked out and never returned. So by the time, what this picture is paint, the picture that this is painting is by the time Chris is turning 16, 17, by the time he's graduating from high school, he's learned to fight. He's learned to hide his intelligence. He's learned to stick up for himself. And he's learned that there's no one out there looking out for him. That's what it looks like, 
right? Chris gets two full scholarships on graduating from high school. One for Reed College in Oregon and the other for the University of Chicago. He chose Reed. He describes it as a huge mistake. And for a portion of the story, I'm going to talk from Chris's perspective. And then I'm going to, to switch to the researcher's perspective. And that switch is very important. So for now, I'm describing this experience as, um, for, as seen through Chris's eyes. It was a huge mistake going to Reed, um, Reed College, he, he recalls, because it was a culture shock for him. So he was a kid who had been working as a ranch hand in Montana, and he found himself amongst long-haired city kids, most of them from New York, who had a whole different style. He couldn't get a word in in class. They were very inquisitive, asking questions all the time. He was crammed into a dorm room. They smoked weed. They brought girls. He didn't know what to do. He would hide in the library. And then he lost his scholarship because his mother didn't fill out a parent's financial statement form to renew his scholarship. When she didn't fill out that form and the university informed him, he said he went to try and speak to someone and they told him, but we've already allocated all the scholarship money, so it's gone, right? And he says, this is his description, that was the style of the place. They simply didn't care. They didn't give a shit about their students. There was no counseling, no mentoring, nothing. He left Reed before writing his final set of exams. So even though he was in a year that was already paid for, and this is important, and he had not renewed his scholarship for the next year because his mom hadn't um, signed, the, hadn't filled the form. He left before writing the exam. So as a consequence, his transcript had Fs, right? And then he went back home and he tried enrolling in Montana State University. And he was taking math and philosophy classes. Then his car broke down. The car that he had bought for himself broke down. Turns out his brothers had been using it while he was away. And his classes were at 7.30 and 8.30 and there was no other transport for him to use. But if his classes were in the afternoon, he could make it if he hitchhiked. He went and he spoke to the university. They looked at his transcript and they said, Sir, at some point, <laughs> you're going to need to take yourself seriously because no one's going to be making special concessions for you when you don't even try. The experiences that he had at Reed and Montana were a turning point in his life, right? He had dreamt of being an academic, but at this point he just threw in the towel. It was just all too difficult. And he said at this point he just thought bananas. That's it. I can do without this higher education system. I am here trying, knocking myself out to make money, to make my way back to school. It's in the middle of Montana winter. I'm willing to hitchhike into town every day, do what I need to do just to get into school. And they're not willing to help me. And his brothers were puzzled. They thought that once he made it into university, because he was so smart, he was just going to do so well. But without a degree, Langan floundered. He worked in construction. He took factory jobs, minor civil service jobs. He, he generally struggled. He wrote a at the, a paper, he wrote a sprawling treatise, it's described as, called CTMU, Cognitive Theoretic Model of the Universe. But without academic credentials, he despairs that it will ever get published. So he has not submitted it to anyone for publishing. He describes, he describes himself in this situation, uh, in this particular context of CTMU, as, I'm a guy who has half a year, a year and a half of college, at some point, this will come to the attention of the editor. 
He's going to take the paper and send it off to the referees. Those referees are going to try and look me up and they're not going to find me. And they're going to say, this guy has a year and a half of college. How can he know what he's talking about? It's such a heartbreaking story. And I cried at this point because I was just like, oh my God, oh my God. How much more does a person need to go through in order to succeed? Um, when he's asked, Christopher Langan, when he's asked hypothetically if Harvard offered you a, a job now, would you take it? He seems conflicted and he says, obviously as a full professor, I would count. My thoughts would have weight. I would have my position, my affiliation at Harvard. At Harvard, I would be able to promote my ideas. An institution like that is a great source of intellectual energy. I would be able to absorb the vibration in the air. And it's clear that he's excited by the thought. And then he goes, on the other hand, Harvard is basically a glorified corporation operating with a profit incentive. And that's what makes it tick. Um, it has an endowment in billions or in the billions of dollars. The people running it are not searching for truth and knowledge. They just want big shots and they'll accept a, a paycheck from these people. It's going to come down to what you want to do and what you feel right versus what the man says that you need to do in order to receive that paycheck. It's a very despondent view. There is another story I need to tell you before I bring it all together. One last story. And that story is about Robert Oppenheimer. Robert Oppenheimer was also a super intelligent man. You might know him as the person who ran the Manhattan Project. But what you may not know about Robert um, Oppenheimer is... Well, he was, he was raised in, in a well-to-do family and he was sent to, to Harvard and then to Cambridge to pursue his doctorate in physics. Robert um, was very much like Chris as far as intelligence is concerned. His parents considered him a genius, both his parents, and he was sent to schools that could support that. He then went to Cambridge for his doc doctorate, like I said, and... He had always struggled with depression, but it became really dark at that point. His tutor was a person called Patrick Blackett. And Patrick actually went on to win a Nobel Prize in 1948. And Patrick was forcing him to attend to the minutia of experimental phys physics, which he needed to do in order to graduate. But as he grew more and more emotionally unstable, Oppenheimer did something very drastic. He took some chemicals from the lab and he tried to poison his tutor. Wild, right? And yet... Um, when Blackett found out and reported him to the school, the report says after protracted negotiations, it was agreed that Robert would be put on probation and have regular sessions with a prominent Harley, St a Harley Street psychiatrist in London. Imagine that. You try to kill your tutor and you get probation. How does that even make sense. When Oppenheimer heard about, so he eventually gets his, his qualifications, etc. Then he hears about the Manhattan Project. And <laughs> he was not qualified uh, by a long shot. Nobody thought he would be the one to run um, the Manhattan Project. Of course, when I say he was not qualified, I mean compared to the other people who were on the roster. Intelligence-wise, we've already established that his IQ was very high. But other than the fact that he had tried to kill his tutor, he was young, 38, junior to most of the people. 
He was a theorist, and the job called for experimenters and engineers. His political affiliations were dodgy. He had all kinds of friends who were communists, <laughs> and at that time that mattered a lot. He had never had any administrative experience, and he was described as a very impractical fellow, right? And yet, Oppenheimer understood that Groves guarded the entrance to the Manhattan Project and turned all of his charm and brilliance onto the person in charge of the project. And as someone else would go on to describe it, it was an irresistible performance. And the result was Oppenheimer went from the person struggling with depression who tried to kill his tutor to running the Manhattan Project. How do two people end up in such different places when they have the same IQ? And this is where it all comes together. According to Malcolm Gladwell and the various researchers that he quotes, it is a question of practical intelligence. To have a talent, to have high IQ, to have a particular skill, hard skill, is never sufficient to take you to the finish line. Beyond a certain level of competence, it is your ability to wield that competence, to wield your presence, to be a presence that defines whether you can be a huge success or not. You will be shocked to learn that a lot of the termites from the earlier research study did not go on to win any Nobel Prizes. They did not go on to be, to be famous leaders of industry or of America. They just went on to, to lead average successful lives. They did well. Some were judges, some were doctors, some even held civil office, but they were all decidedly normal successes despite having the highest IQ ever. So much to, um, to, to, to the disappointment of the researcher, it turns out IQ is not the single determining factor in success. What is key is understanding the situation that you're in and understanding who to talk to and when and understanding where to apply the energy you, you have for the purpose of achieving an outcome. And what was clear from Christopher Langen's story was, A, he had been through a lot and he was traumatized and he didn't have any mental support, one. He had learned to keep his intelligence a secret. He had learned to hide it so that he could survive. He was not very good at interacting with other students. He never spoke. And there's a very telling description of an interaction he has with a calculus professor at his at 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 Reed. So he was at actually he was at Montana State by that time. Why is it that universities that are designed to support people who are super smart were not able to support him? What's wrong? Right? And when you listen in detail to the stories that he tell tells of his interactions with the people that he was asking for help from, there are a few things that he actually did not communicate. So we know the entire story, but he didn't tell the entire story to the people who, were, who he was asking for help. So at Montana State, for example, he says, can I, can you change my classes? Da, 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 da. I would like to come to class in the afternoon. He does not explain why he has Fs on his um a transcript from Reed University. In fact, <laughs> what nearly brought me to tears, or did a few times, was when I was reading about him leaving before he wrote the test, because he left in frustration, I remembered my own 
situation. So I've told you before that I grew up with a single mom. There were times in our lives when things were more difficult than others. There was a time in our life where my mom was struggling to pay my school fees. And she hadn't paid my school fees for a particular year in high school. She hadn't paid yet. And we were approaching exams, um, final exams, actually. And every day I would be, in quotes, expelled. <laughs> they never, they didn't actually formally expel me, but they would tell me I had to leave the school. I was in boarding school. There was nowhere for me to go. They would tell me I, I needed to leave because I couldn't write my exams because my school fees had been paid. And I would talk to my mom on the phone and she would tell me, I'm working on it. I'm making a plan. Oh, my voice is breaking. Um, I better gather myself. But anyway, she'll tell me, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Just give me a few days. So every day I would get chased out of the school. I would go find somewhere to sit. I would wait and then I would go back to the school. And the reason I never got on the bus to go back home was first because I knew there wouldn't be any money for me to come back, number one. But number two, I understood that I could fight for the results after, but I couldn't fight for another opportunity to write. There was only one opportunity to write the exam. And then thereafter, I would have months and months and months to fight to get my results or to make for mommy to make money to buy me, to, to pay for the fees so that I could get the results. Christopher Langan didn't understand that. And this is where Malcolm Gladwell argues that practical intelligence makes a difference. As soon as he got frustrated with the university telling him that he wouldn't be getting a scholarship for the next year, he immediately exited stage left. And even though he had straight A's for his first semester, he had F's for every single subject for the year because he then didn't write those particular exams. Number one. Number two, because he had had this traumatic experience with his father, his ability to engage with authority was very stunted. He had had this traumatic experience with his with his stepfather and growing up and and needing to generally hide his intelligence that even in speaking to people and asking for help, he wasn't able to convey just how intelligent just how intelligent he was, which was a key factor when seeking support. So for example, when he went to his first class, so think of the, a professor dealing with a full class of students. He doesn't know them from a bar of soap. Langen attends one math lecture, calculus. Um, he was required to take introductory calculus. So he listens to the lecturer and he thinks, what is this guy doing? So he says, I happened to get a guy who taught it in a very dry and very trivial way. I didn't understand why he was teaching this way. So I followed him after class. I chased him to his office and I said, why? This is the first interaction with this lecturer, and this is what he says. Why are you teaching this way? Why do you consider this practice to be relevant to calculus? And this guy, tall, lanky, sweat stains under his arms, and turns, looks at him, and he says, you know, there's something you should probably get straight. Some people just don't have the intellectual firepower to be mathematicians. At this point, the lecturer has assumed Chris doesn't understand what is being taught, not that he thinks that it's being taught poorly. So there they are, the professor and the prodigy. And what the prodigy wants is to be engaged with a mind that loves maths as much as he does. But this is the most heartbreaking part of all. 
that Chris manages to have an entire conversation with his calculus professor without ever communicating the one fact most likely to appeal to a calculus officer, to a calculus professor. He never communicates that he is good at calculus. That particular skill that allows you to talk your way out of attempted murder, hello, Robert Oppenheimer, convince your professor to move you to the afternoon classes is called practical intelligence. Knowing what to say to who, when to say it, and knowing how to say it for maximum effect. It is procedural. It is about knowing how to do something without necessarily knowing why you know it or being able to explain it. It's practical in nature. That's not, it's not intelligence for its own sake. It's intelligence that helps you read situations correctly and get what you want. And critically, it is a kind of intelligence separate from the sort of analytical ability measured by IQ. To use the technical term, general intelligence and practical intelligence are orthogonal. The presence of one doesn't imply the presence of the other. You can have lots of analytical intelligence and very little practical intelligence or lots of practical intelligence and not much analytical intelligence. And if you are truly lucky, like Robert Oppenheimer, who was born with a very high IQ and was nurtured into practical intelligence, then you can have lots of both and you can navigate wild situations like attempted murder and still lead the Manhattan Project. Or you can be born with one of the other. And because of your circumstances or because you never listened to this podcast episode or because you never read the book Outliers or because you never um, came across this information, maybe you don't develop your practical intelligence. And you go about thinking, why is it that I am talented and yet I cannot seem to make it? Why is it that nobody is helping me? Why is it that... The system doesn't care about me. And this is how Chris Langan came to be disenchanted. So when we go back to the facts of his situation, this is about to be the longest podcast episode I've ever done, but will be done in, in about three minutes. When you go back to Christopher Langan's story, it's understanding that he should have written the exams anyway. It's understanding that he needed to communicate that his, his mom was uneducated and she didn't understand the form. So when the school didn't tell him that this form needed to be completed, they also didn't expl uh, tell his mother. His mom had no way of understanding. It was a trivial form. It was a thing that could be fixed. It was a question of asking, what are the alternatives? Okay, so now this financial aid is gone. Is there any other financial aid that's available? Can I write my exams, defer for a year while I apply for a new scholarship and come back and continue, right? It was about saying, Give me any sort of test and I will prove to you that I'm worth the investment. It was about asking who is the decision maker and not necessarily speaking purely to the administrative person. It was, there were a lot of things in play. And when I say this, these things, I don't say it lightly because this has happened to me. I told you about my high school experience. I also have a university experience. I went to university and for the first year we paid tuition and we ran out of money. In the second year, my mom was a single mom of three. She wanted the best that she could for her kids, but we just didn't have that kind of money, not Rhodes U University tuition. And so I went back to Grahamstown with no school fees. I had no tuition and just enough rent for two, two months in digs. 
And I understood also that this was my only way out, right? I didn't know how much it would be critical in, to my future success, but I understood that it was important. And so I had to figure out who to talk to. When I spoke to admin people, no one had any idea how to help me. It was just, if you don't have school fees, you have to leave, right? And so I eventually went to the dean of law. And I told him, Professor Midgley, my voice is breaking again. I went to Professor Midgley and I said to him, uh, Professor Midgley, these are my results for last year. I did really well. I need to continue. My mom has two other children. She's single. She has one salary. She's just trying to, 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 to get through it. <laughs> and there's just not enough money for me to, to continue studying. But I feel that I could really do this. Is it possible for me to um, escalate my studies, accelerate my studies, sorry, accelerate my studies, do, do a, a straight LLB instead of a, of, of a BA LLB, et cetera, et cetera. I was giving him options. And I remember him, his, his hands were under his chin, um, folded under his chin, and he was looking at me over his glasses, listening, listening, listening. And he's asking me, so what have you thought of? And da, 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 da. And then he says, give me a transcript. I gave it to him. He, he says, give me this. And I gave it to him. And he says, okay. And he wrote me a piece of paper. On a little square piece of paper, he wrote BITE, B-E-E-I-T, BITE. And he says, go to the finance office and give them this. That piece of paper changed my life. Because I went there. I didn't even know what I'd been given. I went there. I gave it to them. The lady, the admin lady looks at me, sighs. She was not in the mood. She goes, sit outside. I'll help you just now. And then after 20 minutes, I got called in. I, I, I was told to fill out a form. And just like that, I had a scholarship for tuition that would take me for the rest of my university, for the rest of my degree, provided I passed beyond a certain point. And then I asked them to take me through the rules so I would understand. And I made it onto the dean's list that year for academic merit. And I stayed on there because I needed <laughs> that scholarship. My point is difficult things happen even to the most intelligent of people, even to you. The question is whether or not you can navigate in those situations. And practical intelligence, like all other things, is a skill that can be learned. Talking to people is a skill that can be learned. This is why I did that episode on why soft skills are the hard skills, right? Soft skills are defining. You need your hard skills. You need a competent level of intelligence. But put in your 10,000 hours for your hard skills and you will excel in your hard skills. Put in your 10,000 hours on your soft skills and put those two together and you will excel beyond your wildest imagination. Christopher Langan never excelled. He's a farmer and he lives a moderately happy life with his wife and he is bitter about the system and he writes papers that he never will publish because he has already self-rejected. He has not said that he has approached anyone and they've said, we don't want your paper. He has said, but they will look at it and they will say, I'm not worthy. It's that ability to see that I can go on a TV show and everyone knows I'm the smartest person in the room. Maybe I should go speak to a publisher and tell them I've actually been writing this. Maybe it's, I walked away with 250,000. I am still smarter than the average person. 
and I don't have much to do on the farm, whatever it is, maybe I should study now. Maybe I should go back to that university and get the degree because now he can literally walk into uni any university. But he is beyond that point now. He is defeated. Don't let that be you. I hope this makes a difference in your life. And I hope that this story does something to demystify success for you. And a big thank you to Malcolm Gladwell for the book. Um, if you like the episode, please share. Please subscribe. Please like. Please rate. It makes a huge difference to the algorithm. And my numbers are trekking up as more and more of, of you respond to this request. I am eternally grateful. And let's grow together. <laughs>